concentrating on all the sounds in my garden that I might miss as we get ready for this move. And then there's that startling and unmistakable stretch of packaging tape as we set up another cardboard box. Welcome to Into the Garden with Leslie. This podcast is sponsored by Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends, Bulbs, GreatGardenPlants.com, and artist Karen Blair. I'm Leslie Harris, and I hope you are enjoying your garden this summer. I am making a special effort to do so because it is my last one in this particular garden. Oh, hey, I'm really sorry if you're sitting in that horrible heat thing down south. Looking at Al Roker on the Today Show this morning, I realized that there's this trough that makes it so that we're here in the mid-Atlantic and out of danger at the moment anyway. I don't know if it'll shift. We are enjoying a relatively benign early summer. If you're one of the unlucky ones, I'm so sorry. Turn on your hose, turn it on your plants, and then turn it on yourselves. This week, I'll be talking with two farmers, but don't worry, they are gardeners also, and they were gardeners first, and they love gardening. I found them on Instagram under the account Gardening Gaze, and they have moved from a townhouse outside of Washington to a farm in King George County, Virginia. Their names are Kevin Graham and Dragon Cubulia. After that interview, let's talk about what you might be doing in your garden right now, But first, it's all about me. When you heard my last episode, I was getting the garden ready to have the house shown. Somehow, Jeff and I met the deadline of June 16th to get it ready to go on the market, and we hit the road for Connecticut that very morning. Every weed was pulled, and I did some thoughtful placement of attractive pots in beds where those awful little bunnies were making it look like I don't even know how to garden. We left, our real estate agent did his magic, and within 48 hours, it was sold. Obvious questions are, are the new owners gardeners? Will they want to keep it the same? I don't know the answer to either of those, but I'm hopeful that they are and that they will, but with their own stamp, of course. I'm sure they're way too smart to rip up perfectly good and in lots of cases, low maintenance beds to put in grass where grass wouldn't grow very well anyway. I'll probably find out more in the next couple months because hoorah, we get to stay for a little while. We don't have to move until September. It's such an amazing piece of land You can't mess it up if you just leave the amazing mature trees and that really cool stream running through it and let things grow, it's going to be good. What we do know about the buyers is that they've been incredibly generous, letting us stay until September, and I'm going to continue to enjoy this place until the last minute. So now all I have to do is maintain it and enjoy it, and maybe not even in that order, but I'm determined to leave it in very good nick. I've had several people ask if they can come and see it before I leave, and it'll be fun to show it off. It'll look pretty much like my garden until August when I begin to collect all the containers and furniture and get really ready to move. It's an interesting feeling of not getting creative about starting a new project here and yet really looking hard at what I love and what I want in my next place. And speaking of that and speaking of fast real estate transactions, we know where we're going. This also happened incredibly quickly within about five days of selling. It's kind of a blur. It's a cute little neighborhood nearby here in Charlottesville. It's a townhouse, but there is a little garden. I'm excited because there are some cute specimen trees, dwarf, of course. This place is very small. There's good sun in front and quite good shade and a mix in the back. The trees, so there's one of those weeping Circus canadensis or redbud trees, which is a nice native, and a sort of a weeping cherry and an attractive Japanese maple. All of these currently look like Cousin It. That's not a look that will be staying. I'm going to get my pruners and open them up so you can see their beautiful structure, and I'm going to plant lovely things underneath of them. Here I go with an HOA for the first time ever. 
I've talked to some friends who live in this neighborhood, and I understand that I don't have to ask permission like to switch out petunias for an echinacea, but if I want to do anything big, I need a formal design and approval. It's kind of interesting. Oh, I've actually designed a couple of little gardens in this neighborhood, and I remember having to get very specific in terms of measurements and plant choices. So really, the only thing I'm doing right now to prepare for my move garden-wise is eyeing the plants that I eventually want to take cuttings of. I'm also editing containers and their plant material. For example, if it's a container I know I want, then I'm sizing up, okay, what's in you? Would I rather have something from my garden instead of an annual that I'll buy again next year or maybe raise from seed? Or maybe there's some other plant in you that is not, oh, what does Marie Kondo say? that is not sparking joy for me? Yeah, so that's a change I'm gonna to have to make. But the longer I leave plants alone and in the ground, the better. And that's for two reasons. One is, I don't have to take care of them if they're in the ground, their roots will just grow naturally instead of becoming root bound, which could happen if I put them in a pot now. And of course, the second is obvious, if it's in the ground, I don't have to water it. I mean, unless we have a drought or something. So August is my digging up month. It's interesting to think that the new owners, who we really don't know, may well be listening to this or people that they know could be. And I hope nobody thinks that I'm going to be removing plants in their entirety. They bought the house as is, including the plantings. But as I said in my last episode, if you're a good gardener, you can take little hunks of perennials without anybody even realizing that you did it. And I will be a stealthy creature collecting lots of bits, but leaving lots of beauties here in this garden. I'm trying to document some things that I will miss and some things that look great on Instagram. So keep up with me there. I am Leslie Harris LH, and you will see the comings and goings of one very large garden to a tiny one and the drama of which plants will make the travel team. My friend Karen Blair is a Charlottesville-based painter whose work is exuberant, abstract, and bold with colors and shapes. She takes commissions, and I now have to spill the beans that I have already been promised one of her beautiful works for Christmas as a reminder of the garden that we're leaving. I cannot tell you how excited I am about that. I was talking to her about it just last night, and she says the more ideas I send her, the better. But then I know that if I step back and let her decide what goes where and what color and what prominence, it's going to be a beautiful Karen Blair artwork. I don't want to put my stamp on it except for the content. So I'm thinking about my blue bridge and my stream and maybe my Annabelle's and I don't, I don't know what, the, some of the mature trees. I'm so excited about this painting. So if you were to want to see examples of Karen's paintings and think of this for somebody that you know, you can find links to her work on my website, lhgardens.com. Hey, coming up, we're going to talk with Kevin Graham and Dragon Kibulia, Virginia farmers and gardeners. Welcome back to End of the Garden with Leslie. And I'm here with Kevin Graham and Dragon, who needs to say his last name for me one more time. What is it, Dragon? Grubalia. 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 And they, sorry about that. They are the gardening gays on Instagram, and I've been charmed by what they put there and on YouTube. They have this farm, a real farm in, well, it's in King George County. It's between Washington and Richmond, sort of near Fredericksburg here in Virginia. And I really am enjoying following them. The reason that I wanted to have them on the show is because they basically went from gardeners, which they still call themselves, to having a farm, which is making money for them. And I wanted to hear their story. So welcome and thank you for coming. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm glad to see you guys. Um, Dragon, let's start with you. Can you explain to the listeners sort of what the basis of this operation is? 
Absolutely. So uh, we moved up in DC area in 2013. Uh, lived our D gay DC life for a couple of years, but a suburban home and just outside of DC, about 20 minutes in Upper Marlboro. Brand new town home with a uh, builder grade landscaping, and we kind of took off right away. We hated a builder grade landscaping and just changed everything. That following spring, we settled in December, and then March, that the entire landscaping completely changed. And just we loved how community responded to our gardening. So it was like, oh, maybe we know what we're doing. <laughs> uh, so that kind of took off. Uh, we converted our backyard into a raised bed garden. So it, we kind of started, you know, helping our neighbors with, you know, fresh produce and stuff. And then COVID hit. Yeah. And uh Living near a large city like D.C., you go to Costco. It doesn't matter what grocery store, especially in those early COVID months. It was just empty aisles of no meat, no no produce. And it was just just scary. I'm looking at, you know, Kevin, my husband's face. It's just wild. wild. Like, well, I've, been, I've been, unfortunately, I experienced war in ex-Yugoslavia back in the 90s. And I've experienced what is poverty, what is... You know, not having your next meal on your table. And it was scary. And it was kind of bringing those memories back again. But on the other hand, I grew up in Croatia where I, I grew up on a small farm. And we lived off a farm. We lived whatever was in that season. We didn't have tomatoes year-round. We had tomatoes when tomatoes were in the season. We had watermelon when watermelon was in the season. So I was like, well, well, I know how to raise all this. I know how to grow this. That kind of triggered the farm, buying a larger property and growing more produce. And we started looking for a farm. And it was a two-year process just from, from idea to find the right land that we wanted. Uh, I have a big background in hospitality. I manage restaurants, hotels. So I wanted to stay close to D.C. with my connections with D.C. chefs and stuff. <clears throat> but it was so hard to find enough land close to D.C. because D.C. is just so overpriced. Yes. So we, we started looking it up to 10 acres, and that was looking at a million plus dollars just to, just to find even, even land with a livable house. And what we wanted was nowhere near anywhere D.C. We looked into Pennsylvania. We went up to even New Hampshire. Wow, that's fun. We were looking, we were literally looking anywhere on the East Coast. We thought about going even to uh, Texas. I know Dallas is a popular area. We could not find it. was always something missing. Yeah. Had a good land, but no house or vice versa. It was a good house, but land was all wooded. And what we wanted to do, it was just so hard to find. And this property just, it was out of our budget on, on the beginning, but I saved it on, on Zillow just in case. <laughs> <laughs> Went off the market and popped back on the market like six months later with reduced price. And luckily, in the fall of 2021, I don't know if you remember, when interest rates dropped drastically below 2%, we started putting numbers together and we were like, oh my God, this is doable. Do let's it. go see. Yeah, let's go see this property. So we lined up like a dozen properties for that Sunday. And this was our like most south property from D.C. We stopped by here and we, Leslie, we did not want to leave. Aww. It, just, it just literally had, we could have gone checklist. 
uh, water. There's a huge creek in the property, uh, enough clear land. We have a 15 acres of clear and about 12 acres of wooded. Two huge barns, house that just needed some paint. I mean, it, it does need a little more work, but it doesn't need immediate work. So, so everything kind of clicked. It was right close to, to Main Road, which is uh, 301 here. We are right on 301. You know, finding a property for something that we wanted to do and being close to Main Road was important to us. So people have access to us. I see a lot of folks that go into this kind of lifestyle business, finding a property that is in the middle of the boonies. It takes me an hour to get to you. And I'm like, I, I'll support you once or twice. I'll drive half an hour to get eggs from you. But... I can't do that once a week <laughs> to drive half an hour each way. Yeah, so, so closest to the main road was really, really important to us. And we really scored here big time. So that's awesome. Something really accessible. So Kevin, tell us a little bit more about it. Um, so Dragon mentioned there's wooded, there's a house, there's a creek. Do you all use the creek for irrigation? How have you set it up? So we we haven't tapped into the creek fully yet. That's That's on our probably three to five year plan or so. Um, we do plan to add a pond here on property that we would like to be able to tap into the creek just to keep it full mm -hmm. and to have some additional flow in there because we have ducks we have geese on property and we'll like to be able to have an area for them to go down so they can swim without us having to constantly fill up pools for them yeah that makes good sense i was gonna go back dragon for a minute you mentioned your connections that you wanted to keep in the dc area have you been able to do it is it close enough or handy enough so I, I yes yes or no we 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 honestly did not expect support from community as as well as we received. We are in the middle of the farm town. This is farm country here in, in the northeast Virginia. There's nothing but large fields of corn, of soy, or any grains. But there is lack of fresh produce. Nobody grows fresh produce. There is a farmers market where. Unfortunately, it's uncontrolled. So there's half of the people are just the resellers. They buy the wholesale at the same place, the grocery store, to buy their produce and just sell it as a fresh oh, uh, the market. That, that's happening all over. Oh, yes, that's, that's sadly ugly. happening all over the country. That's oh. that's ugly truth about a farmer's market. That, you know, I always tell people, ask your person that you buy at a farmer's market, can I stop by the farm? And that's why... For us, it was always important for people to stop by the farm and see where actually their produce is grown because it's, it's getting scanned for, you know, freshly grown farm-raised tomatoes paying at three, four, five dollars a pound, and it's actually the same tomato. Whoa, whoa. I had no idea. I'm very sad, but... That, that is very common, unfortunately. Some states have control, controlled, but it's usually county by county where they have inspectors that will come out to your farm. And California is really big on that. Inspectors come to your farm and you have to grow everything that you say that you grow and you're selling at your farmer's market. So Yeah. Wow. Oh, disturbing, but good to know, I suppose. Kevin, tell us what you went to first. What was your first crop? You're like, okay, this is the good moneymaker or this is the one that we want to grow first. The first thing that you, or the first few things that you wanted to sell. Well, when we first got here, I think like like most people, uh, chickens was the very first thing we got. So we, we got 35 egg layers at first. Uh, I always say that chickens are kind of the gateway drug into going large scale and farming or homesteading. But when it came to growing crops, we tried a little bit of everything our first season because being new to this community, we did not know what people wanted. 
And we also didn't know how this land would grow food because it had not been used for that purpose or had been farmed for, you know, a good 25 years. And is that an advantage soil-wise that it hasn't been farmed? Well, we thought that it might have been. So there had been cattle on the farm. But so, for example, we grew potatoes and we thought that there hadn't been any food grown here. So we wouldn't have an issue with potato beetles. But as soon as our potatoes started putting on leaves, we had tons of beetles everywhere. So the the pest control issues where we thought we might have had a little bit of reprieve from some of those those things, we didn't. The pest we, we had kind of right away as if these crops had been here on a year-to-year basis. But, you know, we we had peppers, we had tomatoes, we had cabbage, we had corn, uh, we had okra. Watermelon was by far our biggest seller of the season, so much so that we are quadrupling the amount of watermelon that we are raising this year and putting it into a much larger designated space because everybody just absolutely loved those. Oh, nice. Did you grow special cultivars or just something that... No, so we we grew um, Jubilee, we grew uh, Sugar Babies, and we grew Crimson Sweet. So we offered three varieties. The thing that we were concerned about was offering people options and having kind of our big city kind of mentality and experience also, and thinking about people who don't have space to store certain things. We wanted to offer them smaller options, but people tended to love the Jubilee watermelons the most. And we were growing 40 pound watermelons. So this year, that's all we're growing. Like there are, there, there are no options this year. It's the 40 pound or nothing. Okay. Okay. Go, go big or go home. Okay. (laughs) Absolutely. Is the farmer's market your only client or do you sell, you must sell to people who come to visit the farm individually is, is, but is the farmer's market your main concentration of sales, Kevin? So we actually sell, we have our own farmer's market here at the farm. Oh. We don't We don't go to the, to the local farmer's market. When we first started, we didn't have enough produce last season at the beginning to commit. And the organizer had certain rules and you couldn't just do pop-ins. So we said, okay, that's fine. We'll hold off and, and we will do our own thing here at the farm, which turned out to be the best decision ever because people in the community go to the farmer's market on Saturday morning and they still come here as well. That's so great. Because they that we're offering all of these things and through our uh, social media and our Facebook page in particular, we're posting videos and photos on a daily basis almost throughout the growing season of what we have available. And they know they can come and get fresh produce from us six days a week. Six days a week. That is so cool. I know, um, Dragon, you mentioned that your background is hospitality. Does somebody have a background in publicity or marketing? Because this has been a pretty fast success, right? What did, what did you do, Kevin? Well, I'm a journalist by trade, so I, I tell people stories. So, and <laughs> who's better to tell your own story than yourself? That's true. This is kind of my passion. I, I studied journalism. I studied uh, television news. I've, you know, worked for newspapers. I'm an editor now for a military magazine. Oh. So uh, visuals and, and all those things, it's just, it's, what I've been trained to do Mm -hmm. and what I enjoy doing. So all of that stuff is uh, usually me kind of getting our story and our word out. Okay. All right. Well, so listeners, I'll, I'll put all these links in the show notes as I always do, but their YouTube channel is really good and their Facebook although I'm terrible on Facebook. I tried to fiddle around with it. Look. Um, but really good things. And, and of course, I mentioned that I stumbled into them because of their Instagram feed. And I'm just like, who 
are these guys? They look like they're having fun. They look like nice guys. And, and that's how I started following you, I think. So Dragon, tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about the chickens. I know this doesn't relate to most of my listeners everyday thing, but I know because I've seen things that you don't just sell eggs, you sell chickens and it's just you guys and you have to slaughter them. Tell us a little bit, a, a G-rated version <laughs> of that process. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So every animal on our farm has to have a so we, we do receive messages almost daily. People, oh, can you rescue this? Can you rescue this? And unfortunately, we are not nonprofit farm. We do butcher or slaughter animals for feed. So we raise two types of chickens. We raise layers that lay eggs. That at a certain age, they will lay X amount of eggs for three, four years. After that, their production will drastically slow down. So you cannot keep them. They're not profitable to keep. After that, they get sold as a stew hands because their meat for four years that are on the farm, their meat will get really extremely tough. And I don't know if you ever went to grandma's house and you had that chicken that you kind of don't want to. No, I, I never have. But they make great risottos. They make amazing stews because there's so much flavor in them. Oh, okay. So those those mature hands, they usually get sold as, as a stew hands. On the other hand, your, your grocery store chicken that you buy every day at the grocery store. Those are called broilers. So we raise those as well. They take only two months to raise, oh. which is kind of quick. Yes, they're, they're a hybrid breed that is bred to grow extremely, extremely fast. So in eight weeks, you go from a little baby chick, a little yellow puff that weighs nothing, to eight weeks later, they weigh between four and a half to six pounds. That's amazing. It is just incredible. Those chickens are raised generally in the coop houses where, you know, Purdue and all these big chicken companies, those chickens never see a daylight, they never see a green grass, extremely controlled environment of temperature, everything, feed, what's in the feed, being so confined, they allowed about one and a half square foot per bird. Oh, but yours? Tell us the happy difference. So we raise ours in, they're called chicken tractors. So these meat birds, they're not bred to be good foragers. They don't move around much. They just eat and move around a little bit. So they have these boxes. They're called chicken tractors. They're eight by eight. So they give them about 65 square feet. And we keep about 30 to 40 birds in there. But they get moved every morning, every evening. So they always have a fresh grass. So they never sleep in their litter. So it's the short and happy life of the broiler chickens at your farm. Exactly, yes. So we, we make sure that, you know, as long as those animals live on our farm, they have a good life. <laughs> and then they go up to chicken heaven, so all is well. We do process our own birds on our own farm. State regulates how many birds you can process. You can only process up to 1,000 birds without state inspection and sell them. Anything over that, it would have to be USDA. Have you purposefully kept under that 1,000 mark? So, so right, right now we are keeping it, yes, for, for that reason. Our goal is hopefully uh, to have a facility, USDA inspected facility on the property where we can process more than 1,000 birds. We couldn't believe because Kevin mentioned earlier, we did first, our first batch of chickens was 35 meat chickens and they sold, we sold 25 of them within 24 hours. Whoa. And we were like, oh my God, that people actually want, want this. So yeah, they want this. Last year, we did 250 chickens just for me. 
And this year we're doing, uh, we're going to do probably full thousand. We had a schedule 800, but probably our last batch we're going to increase because our last batch is right before Thanksgiving. Oh, that's cool. So who is the chicken expert between you and do you like, do you outsource some help here or do you, is this a two man operation or do you guys have employees? Kevin, how, how about you take that question? It's a two man uh, operation that everybody is completely shocked at all the time. <laughs> um, when it comes to the chicken expert of it all, uh, we've learned a lot about how to do some of these things from YouTube. Like we are, are no stranger to what we don't know and trying to find those skills. And there's always somebody who's done it better than us. And we are not hoarding secrets. So we're always happy to share whatever we've learned with someone else who comes along. Uh, we do have friends who are constantly coming in and asking and offering to volunteer. For example, our orchard that we planted in February, we had 20 volunteers um, from the community, customers who were constantly wanting to help. And they all showed up and we got you know, over 200 fruit trees planted in the ground in less than two hours. Whoa, that is so cool. Have you guys ever heard of Brie Arthur, Brie the Plant Lady? She does edibles. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. just had her on the show this past weekend and she's got this new garden going on next door to the house that um, she lives in. She bought the house next door. And she also is like the Pied Piper of gardening because she, she got like kids from the neighborhood to help her. I just think that's so cool to spread the word about something good. So congratulations for having that community following you. And with the chicken thing, there must be, I'm, I'm just curious, and I don't know if my listeners are, but there must be machines that end their short, happy life. And then there's the plastic wrapping. Is that correct? So I always tell people, everybody always has this vision of their grandmother wringing a chicken's neck. Boom. And I'm like, that's that's not how it works. Like there aren't headless chickens running around. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a process that calms the chickens. Um, and then we have a chicken plucker. Um, a machine that that it has kind of little rubber fingers and it uh, rotates on the bottom. And as it does that, it uh, defeathers the chickens and the meat chickens, the broilers are bred so that there aren't that many feathers that are on them to begin with, um, just as the types of birds that they are. So it's a an easier process. And then when it comes to the clean out and the packaging and everything, all of that stuff, um, over time is a skill that you pick up and it, it gets easier um, and, and you can kind of do it around the clock. I will say what's what's funny all the time is we have so many animals from the ducks to the geese to the bunnies, like cute little furry faces. But anytime somebody comes and we say, you want to see the meat chickens, especially if there's somebody who buys them, they always say no. Like they don't want to meet their food. <laughs> I say, well, that's why you have to give them names like ranch and honey mustard and barbecue. <laughs> It helps. It helps with the mental processes going on. <laughs> that makes good sense. So let's move away a little bit from farming and go more towards flowers and ornamental stuff. Well, actually, before we do, just another business question. When you have people come to buy at the farm, I, I would imagine that your highest profits probably come from the meat and eggs just because they're costing you more and, and margin is a thing. But you also sell cut flowers and produce. And so how does that go financially in terms of what, what gives you the best return? I would say that actually flowers will give you a great return, especially if you do, do your own starts. Like Kevin mentioned earlier, we, we did test garden of, of everything, even with flowers. Our original plans was uh, you cut, you pick flower farm. And uh, we asked community before we opened up our flower farm, 
last year, what would you like? What do you prefer? Do you prefer fresh cut bouquets or do you prefer uh, the you pick? I would say 60% said they want the fresh cut, they want the bouquets, just come and get a bouquet. Some people still want to experience the farm. So we decided our very first, we, we call it a flower bar. Okay. It kind of set, set up a little flower buffet where you can, you know, pick your own uh, bouquets that, you, that we had. And we uh, created a Facebook event for that that day. Uh, I was like, please let us know how many people are showing up so we can prepare ex- exact amount of, of bouquets. So we had about 45 people respond. We prepared, I want to say, 80 or 90 bouquets. That range. So we had gladiolas that were like 25, 30 bucks. Then we had a mixed flower bouquets that were, you know, 15, 20, and then smaller bouquets for 10. So we wanted to have a range. Not everybody wants to pay a $30 for, you know, a dozen gladiolas. For that event, we actually had 80 people show up. <laughs> so, that, uh, so our first five customers, I was working the register and welcoming people. They were taking one of each that I, like I did not expect, like people were so happy to come and help us. And it was just amazing to see that that's such a support. So flowers were our, definitely our initial boom of money that we've had that helped us support the farm because our quickest return is definitely a chicken because in two months you have a chick and then eight weeks later you have processed bird that you sell and you get the, your fastest return from your chicken. It's the dirtiest out of all of them. It is most, I would say, labor intensive because you tend them twice a day, daily, and then processing portion is not pleasant. You know, <laughs> we have a desire to eat. We, we, you know, whether I butcher it or somebody else butchers that chicken, but I'd rather know what my bird has eaten and how I, ra- I was raised mm-hmm. without knowing and just randomly buying at the store. But yeah, flower, flower is definitely... Flowers also, I think, they have a greatest impact on them. Seeing seeing people's faces, even for us, you, you seeing people's faces when they buy their flowers. It's really instant gratitude. Flowers are fun. I, I love them. Kevin, how many different types of flowers do you all grow? Um, so we have sunflowers. We have zinnias. We have mahogany splenda hibiscus. We have a couple of different um, types of amaranth. Um, we have uh, dahlias that we are trying from seed this year instead of dealing with uh, tubers uh-huh. and a few other fillers that we have found over the years and just kind of want to try. We always try to add something new to that just kind of catches our eye. Uh, this year, we also ordered 3,000 gladiola bulbs to plant, not all at once, but when the delivery showed up, and the UPS driver started unloading these six giant boxes. And we're like, what did you order? <laughs> because you, you order so many different things for the farm and gardening. And we're like, oh, it's the gladiola box. <laughs> so those are going to be exciting because we have a few new colors too this year uh, that we're interested to see how, how they pop. I'll be interested to see how the dahlia thing goes. I've never grown them from seed, but I hear it's very satisfying because they're like those broiler chickens. They go along pretty fast and give you something good yeah. in a short amount of time. Um, but there's a real yeah. thing with coleus and you guys and, and and propagating there. Do you find that coleus is a uh, a good cut flower to add to those bouquets? Yes or no. They, they are similar to the hibiscus. You have to be careful when you cut it. Ah. If you cut it in the middle of the day, they will droop. Uh, so cutting them probably early morning or late evening is you will get it better off. 
they might root for you, but you keep them in a vase, you know, for t- for ten days. They don't take long to actually root for you, so you might actually get a bonus plant once you're once you're done with your bouquet. But we we use them mostly to to decorate our around the house. We also sell some of them, but very limited because there are some of them are patent protected, so we can't really sell someone, but uh, propagating, I and mean, you can always propagate. There's no propagation police when you propagate stuff for yourself, but you got to be careful. What do you sell? Yeah. Just today, I got my coleus for the year. I chose three different types. And for me, you know, just tiny little plants, and I'm just going to propagate from those original plants. And, and, you know, and so I think of that more as a fall filler by the time those guys reach maturity. There's once the heat, once they get the heat, they, they just explode. It's heat and water. It's, it's just such an amazing plant. That's why we love it so much, especially now these newer varieties that can take full sun. As long as, as you give them water, they can take on full sun. You know, coleus, I grew up, and I never realized there was outdoor plant. We always had an indoor. Oh, did you really? Yeah, my grandmother always had it in a window. That was I've never seen it outside. Huh. And all of a sudden, here we came to the United States. I was like, oh my god, this is my grandmother's plant. And she, had but everybody plants it outside as a, as an annual. But we keep ours. We always we have a great south facing window that we just loaded up every every October or November whenever it cools off. So just in case a listener wants to try that for the first time, I think I've done it with mm, limited success. What are some tips on keeping a coleus going well over the winter? Good lighting. They will lose color. Uh, watering, they love water. They don't like to be damp, but they love water. They love wet, but not damp. Okay. So, so with the damp pots, you are running into risk of uh, right. gnats. In your, in your house and that, that's always an issue so watering them from the bottom that's one trick that we always we keep deep saucers Dollar Tree has these great deep saucers they're about I would say 10-12 inch saucers but they're really deep oh. and we fill up those with the water so that way gnats need wet soil to reproduce but if you water from the bottom your top of your soil of your coleus will feel, feel dry you stick your finger about 2 inches down deep that's when it's wet it will fill the wet, and that is too deep for the for the oh, flies. Okay, that's a really good tip. What's the name of the company that makes the deep saucers? The, the Dollar Tree sells them there. Oh, Dollar Tree, a very a very exclusive uh, source. Thank you for sharing that. I would say don't don't sleep on the Dollar Tree. We we get a lot <laughs> of really great gardening supplies from Dollar Tree from um, from flex ties that we use to tie up our tomatoes to steaks to the the saucers that we use for all of our house plants and other items there. And don't just shop at one. You have to go different places. Like uh, even the pots that we put our coleus in, our houseplants, um, they have great decorative pots that just aren't plain. And we get questions about those pots when people see our coleus videos, where'd the pot come from? And I'm always like Dollar Tree, but you have to you have to catch it. Like this is the time of year when the stock is starting to be replenished on all of those great finds. Okay, so so April is a good time to go before they get then they get wiped out and then and then it's Yeah. And 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 travel to all of them that are nearby because each one will have something a little bit different. Okay. I did not think that we would get dollar tree tips out of this conversation. I'm very excited about this. We're very resourceful. <laughs> you are. You mentioned that you're also in love with hostas. Who's the hosta guy? Does one of you like them more than I the just, other? I love hostas. Yeah, I just, I love the impact that they bring and the fact that once they get, you know, big enough, you can go in and divide them and start getting more plants. And, you know, like that's talking about being resourceful. That's what we love. Coley is also 
just the idea of being able to to buy one thing right. and then multiply it to get multiple beautiful plants out of a single plant that you buy. Um, the hosta has that same yeah. uh, type of feeling and they come in different different variegations, different colors, different textures also. So just for one type of plant that has so many different looks to it, but you get that same great big leaf and great impact and you don't have to do much except give it a, a, a shaded place if they like a little more shade, some can tolerate a little more sun and keep them well watered. And once the season is over, they're going to come back again for even stronger the following year. So the only, the biggest problem with those guys, I think is um, deer, you know, That's the deer true. love them. They think they're wonderful. I find that they actually in my garden, I don't have an irrigation system and they can get through a drought pretty well. Deer candy is what, what we, we often hear them refer to. So you do have to be careful with that. So do you have deer pressure at the farm? We don't because we, where we actually have our hosta, our, our shade garden is right along US 301. So it's, it's in a protected area. So we don't have any deer that are on this area, but over uh, where they do pop out from our wooded area, there's a massive clear pasture that they have to get through before they get to anything they might want to. Okay. So they haven't discovered any of that. And I think that it it's too much of a, of a risk for them to travel. So um, uncovered to get to anything that, that might be of interest to, to destroy or eat. Okay. Well, good luck because we love it when they stay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, they're so terrible. I have a deer fence and they find ways to get through. Um, so Dragon, you had mentioned that there are very few coleus that you could propagate to sell because they're protected by patents. So hosta, same thing, or can you sell some of those? You can propagate it for yourself. You can't propagate it for. So you don't sell those in general? No, they're just for your own pleasure. You cannot. Uh, it, it gets really tricky. Uh, I love propagating hydrangeas, so I've learned recently how to propagate hydrangeas, and I love propagating them, and it's the sa same thing with them. Unless you have grandmother's hydrangea that is... That nobody knows about. Yeah, that nobody knows about. It's, you know, safe, safe is bad, especially if you start scaling up your operation. You're going to run into issues, and why, why run into issues, so... Um, what are your favorite types of hydrangeas, Dragon? So we grew hydrangeas up in our town home. That's how we started. What we loved about them there is that they bloomed purple and pink on the same plant. Lovely. Like blue, we would go from blue, purple, pink, and then the same plant would have same same those flowers. And we've been propagating that same hydrangea here. I don't really know what the type is. So it's a macrophylla type. I mean, you know, they're they're those basic types. They're the oak leaf, quercifolia, and they're the arborescence. But it's not, if it's purple and pink, it's got to be a macrophylla. But you don't know the name of it. We propagated a lot that one actually. We go back to us, so we still own that townhome that is in Upper Marlboro. We go back to and get cuttings every every season. We go back and get the cuttings from because they they're just so good there. That soil we amended so many times, and you know, people are always so fixed on clearing your beds. I don't mind somewhat messy flower bed, but if it's right kind of mess, I don't mind dead leaves. Those dead leaves are good to compost. Like any cuttings that, especially in the late fall, if I cutting up my lilies, I will trim them into small pieces and bed, bed up the roots. I will, same, same thing with hydrangeas. Hydrangea blooms that are spent, if I'm not using them for my fall decor, I'm going to cut them up and just bed up that hydrangea because by the time spring comes around, those they're going to be all the way down to the ground. You're not going to be able to see them. You know, people are so 
so caught up on cleaning that flower bed and making it so immaculate, but that you take away all the good stuff with the, with, with the rake. You know, you put on the mulch, but that mulch is, again, so processed of, of everything. So we, we try to keep a, as much to a natural look as, as we can with our with our flower beds. I, I totally agree with what the, what you're doing. And I, um, because of understanding more about how to build good soil and also an aging body. Um, the chop and drop system is what I'm using in my, in my garden. You know, I used to take every little thing off to a compost pile and bring it back in the form of compost to the same place where I could have just left it. So we're skipping a step there and we're very happy about it. Do you find that, um, Kevin, that the people who visit your garden have a certain expectation or are they happy with sort of a, okay, working farm doesn't have to be perfect type of look? Everybody always sees things differently than we do. Uh, and I'm, one of the things I always, we, we try to do is, is stop every now and again and see what we're doing through other people's eyes because everybody comes and they say, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. This is so amazing. And all we ever see are lists of projects <laughs> or wheat that needs to get pulled. I think every gardener can can walk through their own space. And if their friends are coming through and their friends are saying, oh, I don't have a green thumb. Everything I touch is just going to die look at all the things that you've done you're you're sitting there stressing over oh my gosh i hope they don't see those two weeds that are there while they're giving you all this praise about this beautiful space that you've created so it's it's taking that pressure off i I always say there's no such thing as perfect but there are such things as seasons and the great thing about gardening is that if it doesn't work now there's always next season you know you can either try again or you can try something completely different don't stress so much about it. I think that's been one of my biggest lessons about gardening and growing and, and being on a farm is is learning how to let go and not be so rigid and to allow yourself the space to to fail because that's where the teachable moments are going to come. Exactly, exactly so. And both of you, when you started this venture, well, you know, we know that Dragon, you grew up on a farm, but who, like, Kevin, did you have a background in gardening or farming? So my dad has a lawn service business and uh, all of my siblings and I all grew up doing that. Like, you know, we, we all grew up, our first job at five years old was out on a lawnmower or in a flower bed pulling weeds. But because of that, we all swore we didn't want a single flower bed or a single tree at our yard or anything like that when we became adults. And uh, now, now look at me. <laughs> yeah. Now look at you. So no stranger to, to being outside and, and getting my hands in, into soil. Yes, exactly. So, and it sounds like you guys are very interested in being good stewards of your land. You're, you're keeping your woods. Um, do you maintain them in always with woods there are going to be invasive you know alien invasive plants do you look to the what you know to the wildlife out there or are you just too busy sticking with what you need to grow in the uh, in the open bits we mentioned earlier it's only two of us on the farm so woods woods is now kind of le- left alone uh it's 12 acres of woods uh, we do have future plans or so, you know five-year 10-year plans that what do we want to do with it uh we definitely want to keep as much as woods that we that we can uh, but right now, yeah, man- managing, we'll, we'll probably in the next couple of years, we're going to go go throughout and manage it. We have a fence that surrounds pretty much uh, entire pasture, entire 50-acre pasture. I would like to have a clear path on both sides of the fence. Mo- most common practices you have on a pasture side is completely clear. The other side is you can't even go through it. And that's how this fence is. And I, w- I would like to change that. And I would like to be able to 
go on either side of the fence so I can uh, manage it a little better. Um, let's talk about uh, sustainability for a minute before I let you guys go, because I know you're two-man operation that's very busy. You got to get back out there. It's a beautiful day. Um, we're talking, by the way, listeners, in late April. I think this podcast will probably drop in June, maybe. Um, but anyway, I'm sure you're very busy getting things rolling. What practices, actually, it's interesting a question for you, particularly, Kevin, and, and maybe for you too, Dragon. So you were raised in situations where there might have been a lot of pesticides and herbicides in use because that is the way these businesses have been run. And I, hopefully it's changing with the knowledge that's coming along. But um, what practices of sustainability have you all been able to put into place that you're that you're proud of? First of all, we try to do everything completely organic on our farm. So we don't don't use any uh, manufactured pesticides or herbicides or anything like that. And permaculture is is kind of the name of the game for us, uh, where we take everything that is considered waste from the farm and we feed it back into the farm from all of our manure, from the animals, from the chickens, from the rabbits, um, that we are then feeding that back into our soils and the plants that we're growing and getting those uh, returns right back. So, you know, even the, the amount of times that we have to, to make a trip to the dump is very few and far between. I think we actually went uh, to the dump for the first time a couple of weeks ago since the end of last year. For organic debris? So everything is is being completely repurposed uh, back into the beds and, and composting and, and things like that. That's really good. Right. Yeah, Dragon can probably elaborate a little bit more because he's a little more hands-on with that. Okay. What do, you, what do you know about that, Dragon? So yeah, like Kevin said, you know, it's we lived in a townhome in Upper Marlboro. We had a weekly trash pickup and you have three, four bins every week. And here to go like this, our first trip to dump was in March of this year. Like we went three months and we only have like two bins. And it's just makes you realize how much waste are you creating and how much impact you just, just as two of us. Like, it is just crazy. You know, it is easy to say, oh, well, you know, what single person can, how much of an impact can have? But actually, it can. When you really look look at yourself and look how much stuff you're putting out on your weekly trash pickup, yeah, you can have a huge impact. Yeah. Uh, so, we, like Kevin said, we try to, you know, any any food waste goes right back to chickens. Chickens will take care of it. And what they don't eat, they will go compost it into the ground where, where they are. And then manure is made into compost and we use it throughout the gardens and orchards and flower beds and stuff. So that that's it's, it's a huge, huge impact on that part. It's just realizing how much waste reduction we, we, we created. So hopefully we can inspire other people to do the same. So. Yeah. And then it sounds like you're going to, you know, you have that plan of tapping into the stream to keep your own water and be able to use that on the farm, too. So that's all that's all wonderful. Um, can you think of anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to talk about? Have a have a goal. Long-term goals, short-term goals are always great. Kevin mentioned earlier, have those little, complete little projects. It's easy with gardening. You know, you have so much to complete. But just completing one single area, it will be so rewarding to you instead of tackling so many different even i get a burnout we get a burnout some days that you started planting your flowers you started planting your vegetables you have chickens moving around your your raised beds are halfway done like everything is halfway done and it's easy to get overwhelmed 
at those moments. But just to taking a step back and finishing the small small project, it's sometimes just so so easy. Yes, I was doing the seed order last. I'm sorry, seed planning back in February, and I'm going to this needs to be planned to ten week, eight week, six week, and I got to the eight week, and, the, and like it is. 50, 60 seed, and I, I started hyperventilating. I was oh, like, no. oh my God, like this is, <laughs> how am I going to manage this eight week? There's just no way, like eight weeks is really when you start majority of your, like, you know, six to eight weeks, majority of the stuff. And it was just, oh my God, this is so overwhelming. How, like, we don't have a massive greenhouse. We don't have, you know, we have an indoor grow area. We have a cold frame outside that is eight by six, I think. And it's it's not much, you know, but like we've done it. We're about a week or two away from planting, and then we, we've done it. We, what we didn't manage, it will go directly in the ground. It's okay to to miss it and then do it. Yeah, it'll bloom a little bit later, a couple of weeks later. So what? Oh, okay. It's not a big deal. Okay, just keeping that perspective and one foot in front of the other, right? You guys, thank you so much, Kevin and Dragon. I, it's it, it's really interesting for me to hear about. I have no aspirations of being a farmer and even chickens, although I find them fascinating and I've really thought about it hard in the end. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that, but I'm glad that you guys do that. And you have a place that people can visit and it's really handy here in Virginia and um, listeners, you know, make sure that you go to lhgardens.com to look at the blog posts that will accompany this. And I'll put some photographs and some links and hopefully I'll send some extra people your way. That would be really fun. Thanks you guys. Thank you. This is very fun. Good. Um, We'll be right back in a few minutes to talk about what to do in your garden this week. Are you ready to create the garden of your dreams? I am a new little tiny one. GreatGardenPlants.com is here to help with perennials and shrubs delivered to your front door. With over 800 plants to choose from, you'll find exciting new varieties as well as old favorites. And their website makes plant shopping really fun and really easy because you can filter exactly what you need in terms of zone and light and color and deer. Once you're ready to order, you select your ship date so that you know exactly when the plants will arrive. And if you're worried about shipping plants in the mail, stop worrying. They arrive in great condition, but they are guaranteed. And as a listener of this show, you can save 10% on your first order with the code GARDENWITHLESLIE. Visit greatgardenplants.com and shop with the code GARDENWITHLESLIE for 10% off and happy gardening. I hope you like my chat with Kevin and Dragon. I'm definitely guilty of getting a little bit off the gardening topic with my curiosity about things like broiler chickens. Sorry, I just couldn't help myself. I had to know more. You'll see links to all their socials in the blog post that accompanies this episode. And I hope if you're in Prince George's County, you stop by and meet them. I intend to someday, that's for sure. Questions from listeners. Well, I got an amazing email from a listener named Jennifer Tanner. I won't bore you with all the details that she included that made my head swell. It was it was so complimentary, very sweet, made me feel like I was actually doing some real good stuff with this podcast, so I appreciate that. But I wanted to pass on a really positive lesson that she described that she's doing. She and her family moved to a garden in Lynchburg, Virginia. Well, it had been a garden, but there was a ton of growth over what she could tell had previously been something quite good. You know, the the former owners had just grown older and we can't always take care of gardens as our bodies age. So it didn't look great when she got there. She got advice from lots of different landscapers and every one of them said, just pull everything and start again. But she didn't do it. And she was so glad because all kinds of things have bloomed and grown for her just by her understanding what's good and what's not. 
and by giving the good things some space. You know, it's one of those things that I'm talking to you and you're a gardener, so of course you would know to do that, dear listener. But there are lots of people out there who would just not have the knowledge or the patience to value what's already there. Landscapers are hardworking, wonderful people, but they're running a business. And the best way for them to make money is to install plants. It's called margin. I know this because I ran a business and I love taking advantage of the concept. But I would like to think that I didn't let dollar signs get in the way of leaving something well enough alone if it had potential. There are lots of non-gardeners who might want to garden when they move someplace new and assume that the best way to get it is to start with a clean slate and buy a lot of plants. Keep every plant tag, know exactly what's growing and how thick the mulch is between each new shrub or perennial. But you and I know better, don't we? We know that real gardening is working with nature and maybe working with the previous gardener's dreams and creations to see what's there, to understand what works, and to get what's good for ourselves in the end even if it means living with some plants for a while, which you may actually yank in the end because you decide that it wasn't the right thing. Sort of like that rug in my husband's office that I'm looking at thinking, no, I I can't do that one anymore. It's been with us for almost 40 years, but it's probably going to make the move because I don't have anything better yet. (laughs) Patience is gardening and gardening is patience. You know that, I'm quite sure, because you're a gardener, because you're listening to me. So what's going on in the early July garden? Well, now that I'm about to leave mine, I'm very, very pleased with my collection of daylilies for the first time. It's because a bed that I put in especially for them with some peonies and some irises has finally getting matured and I can actually see, oh yeah, I kind of did this well. The short ones are in front and the tall ones are mostly in back and the colors kind of work together. I'm not taking them all with me, but it's, it's a fun look and I hope the next owners enjoy it. Hey, just like any other plant, almost, that you could fall in love with, just like daffodils, just like peonies, salvias, snowdrops, daylilies don't bloom all at once. They're definitely a summer plant, but there's some early ones, some of mine are done, and there's some late ones or mid ones. I'm looking at some blooms that are just sticking up and they're not started yet. I can't wait to see what color they are because I can never remember what I've done. Some are tall, some are short, such a range of colors and even combinations of colors on one bloom. It's a pretty amazing plant, the Hemerocallus. So if you see a mass planting of Hyperion or Stelladora, which are probably the two most common landscape type of daylilies, please don't labor under the false impression that that's really all a daylily is and nothing more. I have some cute, tiny, almost purple ones, and I'm a sucker for the ones that you would call peach or apricot colored. There's one I have that's such a pale yellow that it's almost white. I actually took a video to remind my August self, which is when I'm going to take some cuttings, of which ones I definitely need to take to the next garden, because by the time I'm ready to do that, I won't know what color they are because they basically will be gone by then. The other reason daylilies are so amazing is because they seem to tolerate drought better than so many other perennials, and yet their roots can sit in a bog. Lots of people rail against them because their susceptibility to deer damage, and I totally get that. Do you know that they're actually edible for people too? If you ever want your friends to cement their suspicion that you're actually a lunatic gardener, throw some daylily blooms into the salad at your next dinner party. That's going to convince them that you aren't just a little bit crazy. Another common complaint about daylilies is that they can look tatty, and I get that too. If they're planted in a big enough crowd, you don't really have to look too much at the withered foliage, which always grows on the outside of a foliage bunch but it does turn brown or yellow and it can look a little bit unsightly. 
My reaction to that as a professional gardener was tedious nitpicking to leave something beautiful for the client, at least until we came back next week. As a personal gardener, I'm just trying to look at the bloom. And although it's quite satisfying to get on your hands and knees and get rid of the yucky foliage a couple of times a month, I definitely am much more lax about it than I used to be. All right, what else is looking good? My alliums, they're still up, but they don't have any color left. They're just a gray green and beginning to go brown. They still look good to me. I just love the form. But blowing summer thunderstorms will begin to take away their uniformity of the standing army of fuzzy balls. So I'll begin to add them to the compost pile. But you know, if I weren't moving, I would keep a collection of them to possibly use as Christmas decorations or dried arrangements. Oh, speaking of alliums, Color Blends is a third-generation bulb company offering top-sized flower bulbs directly to ambitious residential gardeners and landscape professionals at wholesale prices. That's where I buy all of my bulbs. Clearly, they are a sponsor, but I got to tell you, I've used them for years before they started sponsoring this podcast. So check out Color Blends. The Annabelles are having an amazing year, pure white standing out with their big blousy balls, I can't remember if I confessed to premature whining or not. I was convinced that I would get no macrophylla blooms, you know, the type of hydrangea that they call the mop heads, the ones that can be blue and purple and, of course, pink, the macrophyllas. Well, I have about 25% of what would be an outstanding year of blooms. My husband called me out for that the other day. He said, hey, didn't you say that you weren't going to get any blooms on that type of plant? Yes, I admitted I had moaned about it more than once. It's true because we had these ridiculous low temperatures in April when the buds had set. That premature whining thing, it's not welcome when you hit a questionable golf shot that ends up going just where you wanted to. It's not welcome in gardening. It's not welcome anywhere for that matter. Echinacea, oh my gosh. Oh, I meant to mention about daylilies when we were back there a minute ago. I have an amazing lack of knowledge about cultivar names on those. I can sort of name three. I think I already named two for you. And those are the types that I do not wish to have in my garden. Echinacea, same thing. But my pretty pink ones, whatever they are, they're definitely not pallida because I don't like those droopy petals on the pallida. I know it's a healthy plant, but just like that leather leaf viburnum, that viburnum ritidophyllum, it would not be a choice for me because I just can't get over the droopiness of it and I just see sadness. Anyway, whatever my echinaceas are, they are perky. They are pink. And they seem to not even need to be deadheaded, even though they've been blooming for like two to three weeks. It's kind of crazy, covered with pollinators. My only complaint is that of the garden designer, me, who ended up putting them at the edge of beds where they are the tallest things, like a wall where you have to peer over. Full disclosure, it's not totally my fault. I would have had even taller plants behind them if I didn't have rabbits that needed to eat all of my cosmos and dahlias. Moving on. A very poor showing from Menarda this year, and I, I can't explain that. But if some things are going gangbusters, and if some things are being shy, maybe it's just like good friends who are letting somebody else take center stage because they've had it for the last few years in early July in the garden, and it's somebody else's turn. And here's another one for the column of, I don't know why this looks so darn good this year. It's my calla lilies. Let me practice my Latin for you just because this is quite a doozy, and I took the trouble to look it up. Calla lilies are... Xantidesia Ethiopica. I'll repeat because it's kind of fun. Xantidesia with a Z, Ethiopica. But let us just call them calla lilies. And I bet you that botanical name will stick in my head for a good 17 seconds after I finish recording this. Anyway, they look spectacular for me this year. 
And I honestly only ever hold them to the minimum standard of giving me some pretty speckled foliage. If they bloom, that's icing on the calla lily cake, and they're blooming like crazy this year. Some of my new listeners might be wondering, why is this lady saying that she doesn't understand this and she doesn't understand that, and her field is supposed to be horticulture? Okay, caught. If I weren't a little busy with real estate transactions and packing up a house, I would put at least 30 minutes of due diligence, that's about my attention span, to try to find out why things are going well this year or poorly in any given summer and pass on pearls of wisdom for you, dear listener. But you know gardening, I might find theories, but I wouldn't find hard facts, and I need to put my extra time into enjoying this garden before I leave it. So there you have your answer, a lack of information. (laughs) A couple of little hints for you. Keep pinching your annuals if you want them to be bushy and not so tall and stretchy. If you dare to transplant now in the heat of summer, our heat hasn't really actually started. But if you do move things, look at the weather report and look at your calendar to make sure that either you or Mother Nature or both will be around to water whatever you have moved to settle them in for the first week or two. And the last little tip is to keep at your annuals, whether they're in the ground or in containers. Keep at them by removing, every few weeks or so, about 25% of the growth. If you can figure out what's older growth, cut that away. Remember that plants react to being cut by growing. And if you are steady with this strategy, you'll always have fresh new growth on your annuals. Do I practice what I have just preached to you? Yeah, not so much, but I'm hopeful that by saying it to you all, I might start to do it too. And what to listen to this week? Well, you know, sometimes I summarize a podcast that I listen to for you, and then, of course, you could go listen to the whole thing if you want. Actually, what I'm going to do is link to two podcasts about the following topic that you are going to need to investigate on your own. According to a guy named Dan Jaffe Wilder, what is the best thing to plant instead of grass for your lawn? Well, the answer is wild strawberries, and I think that's worth your time to go on to listen to if you are considering ditching your turf grass. He was interviewed by both Tom Christopher on Growing Greener, and also a couple of years ago, Margaret Roach on her podcast, A Way to Garden. So go to lhgardens.com to find out more and see those links. And when you go, add your comments and consider buying me a coffee to help support the podcast. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends Bulbs, GreatGardenPlants.com, and my friend, artist Karen Blair. I named the show Into the Garden with Leslie because I'm really into my garden, particularly as I begin to say goodbye to it. And I want to get you into yours. And I'll see you next time.